The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is James Hawes, who is a novelist and a scholar of Kafka and a Germanist, and having written The Shortest History of Germany, he's now followed up with remarkable haste with The Shortest History of England. James, welcome. Now, The Shortest History of England, first thing I well, think is, what's the virtue of doing something so concise what what to you appeals in the idea of taking history of which we've got quite a lot and condensing it into 250 odd pages well i I think the key thing is sam to get people to sort of be able to see the whole sweep of it in one and i came across something early on that that louis de bernier wrote in the financial times which i'll just quote if i may the english have lost their sense of themselves as an ancient shared culture In our schools, history is taught in a strangely episodic manner, so students have no continuous historical narrative. The English don't even know their country geographically. So I I think there's a real real need to give you the chance to really sit down, really for just an afternoon, because that's all it'll take, and and read through the whole thing and try to find out how it all actually hangs together, if at all. In researching it, I mean, I'll say there's an awful lot of history. You're not by training in English history. Where do you begin? Do you sort of... I mean, I, I, it certainly shows, and I say this is, you know, an intended compliment. It's like you've done more than probably I do, which is simply kind of spend a lot of time on Wikipedia. Oh, yes, absolutely. No, I mean, there, there's real research there, I, I must say. And, and there's some nice little nuggets, which we might talk about later on, which I'm rather, rather proud and entertained, proud of and entertained by. Uh, one more starts at the beginning. We we're lucky, really, because we have this really quite extraordinary thing that, that we, can, we can date exactly, I mean, almost to the hour, the day when we emerge from the mists of antiquity into, into written history, which is, you know, Caesar arriving off Ebbsfleet. And we know, we know exactly, it's a quite extraordinary thing that we can actually date the, the, the start of real history as opposed to archaeology in this country to an exact moment, which is rather wonderful. So I start there. You start there? No, I, I was thinking in terms of research, what, what are your sort of go-tos? Because there's so much kind of close-ups, you know, you could spend, I don't know, half a lifetime, as many scholars do, researching just one, you know, 20-year slice. Well, I, I mean, the thing is, I, you have to read, read... I read all the sort of the big single-volume people, so, so Tombs and Wormald, McFarlane and Jenkins, of course. I mean, you read all those first. That's what I started off doing. That's about three years ago, really. So, and then to try and get some... And Macaulay, of course, which I did at college and all those things, just to get some idea of the sweep. And then you hope in that reading to pick up on something or other that interests you, which, which makes you think, hold on, there's something here, because... And here's, here's one, one for me, this is one of the key ones for me was this. I was reading, of course, Churchill's History of the English-Speaking Peoples. And I was reading his wonderful depiction of Runnymede. And it's a lovely bit of Churchillian purple prose. And he describes the barons dressing in their, their nerves, the fact they know if they don't pin this bastard John down right now, you know, they and their families are going to be, have hideous vengeance wreaked upon them. It's got to be today. It's a wonderful thing. But the one thing Churchill doesn't say there or anywhere else, really, is that every single person at Runnymede would have been speaking French. No one who mattered would have said a word of English other than perhaps give me a drink to their valet. Because the the, the upper class of England in 1215 
only spoke English as sort of kitchen kaffir, if at all. I mean, no, we, we have historical records showing that even people like the Chancellor of England sometimes couldn't speak a word of English. And I think well, that when you, see it, when you see it, that's not said, even in a, such a wonderful book by a wonderful writer called The History of the English-Speaking Peoples, you start to think, hold on, there's something else to be said here. Well, maybe he was invested in his, in his title. You know, it's too late to change it. It's already in the publisher's catalogues. But language is a good starting point, isn't it? Because that seems to be one of the big themes of the book. Can you talk a bit about how, how and why this idea that the English didn't really speak English for a long time and a lot of them didn't speak the same English has shaped the history? I mean, not, you know, I've, I've said right back from the beginning. Well, it goes right back from the beginning, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, our first historian, the, the Venerable Bede himself, he thinks fit to mention, I think, nine times in his ecclesiastical history. 730 AD approx, so that there are northern and southern Englishmen. He doesn't mention this once, he goes on about it. He clearly thinks this is something very profound. So even then, now that is in turn reinforced by the Viking settlements of the north and east of England, who actually speak a different language, of course. And by late Anglo-Saxon, the late Anglo-Saxon period, you have this strange mixed language of, 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 of Saxon and Danish, essentially. I mean, most scholars these days refer to late Anglo-Saxon England as Anglo-Scandinavian England rather than Anglo-Saxon England, because the, the, the Danish influence is so strong. You know, Knut and all his elites speak Danish, and, and, the, and the English modify their language in order to sound like the elite, the way people do. And then this already rather mixed-up linguistic culture... So the, I mean, the entire elite of England for 30 years were, were Danes or Danish collaborators, essentially, like, like Harold, King Harold's father. And so we actually ad we adapted the way we spoke English. And the reason we say, I have read a book, rather than I have a book I read, is because that's Danish word order, not, not Germanic word order, Southern Germanic word order. It's very weird, isn't it, that the, I mean, shooting forward a bit, a scholar of Chaucer telling tell me the Gawain poet had been writing at, a, at almost exactly the same time as Chaucer. And yet the language is so different. Oh, absolutely. No, I, mean, I, I was brought up in Shropshire and I remember some farm boy saying to me once when I was at 17, he was describing a fight he'd had. And he said, so I fanged old of him. And I thought, hold on, that's, that's out of date by Chaucer's time. Fangen is German for to grab. And, he, <laughs> and, and this was, this was antediluvian by Chaucer's day in mainstream English. So yes, the, the, these, these things, we were, we were a very sort of mixed up linguistic culture, as were many places, of course. By our, by our modern sons back then, but then, then this, this absolute sort of nuclear event happened, the, the Norman Conquest. And I think it's important for us to remember, because we tend to think of ourselves as, as this country which has this wonderful continuity. And, and the, stand, the standard Victorian interpretation was, well, yes, well, the Normans invaded, but at least we were never invaded again after that, so that was OK. But if you look at a map of, of European countries around 1000 AD, it's actually very, very similar to now, apart from the, the Moors in Spain, essentially. And of all those cultures, only one suffered what we suffered in England, which was you know, the complete cultural, military and social decapitation in one afternoon of the entire elite and their, their replacement with a foreign band who, who spoke a language which was unintelligible to the majority of the people. Quite extraordinary. It's the kind of thing that happened to the Russians under the Mongols, you know. But as you, as you actually say, the people who were there when the Normans invaded hadn't been there originally. I mean, you've got to, what, what fascinated me was that you know, before that, the Saxons coming in and saying, you know, as, as the Romans hadn't, look, the people here are so crap, there's nothing we can take from them. We're going to impose our culture wholesale, and we can. You know, that, that we ended up with a sort of language, pre-Norman, that was, that was, you know, Saxon, sort of German. 
Well, absolutely. I mean, that, that's why if I, if, I, if I say to you 8th century German swear word, unders arsen den naso, you can probably guess it means hounds arse in thine nose to this day. So there, there, there was a time, and that's why people like St Boniface could go over to Germany and try and, try and convert the heathen in their own language, because we could still, we and the Germans could still speak to one another without, without interpreters until the 7th or 8th centuries AD. Patrick Wormald and Robert Toombs have pointed this out. We did have an extraordinarily close relationship, probably between the people and the elite, in the sense that we were the only people in Western Europe whose laws were set down in their own tongue. Everywhere else used Latin laws. And one, one of Charlemagne's court priests reports with astonishment that in England, even the proceedings of the Synod of the Church of England are given in, in, the, in the tongue of the people, as he calls it himself, as well as in Latin. So we did have, arguably, this, this, this very unusual sense, of a, sense of, a, of a tight being between the common people and their elite, which was fractured by the Vikings and, and the Viking attacks and then by, by Knut's invasion, but then completely wiped out by the Norman conquest, after which you have this extraordinary gulf, which exists really nowhere else in Europe, between the elite and the common people, which is maintained up to the, up to the present day. I mean, we forget, I think, sometimes that it was it was 1919 before you could go to Oxford and Cambridge to do anything without having both Latin and Greek. And that, until my mother's generation, certainly, I mean, it was just assumed that if you were remotely middle class or better in England, you naturally spoke French. I remember my, my mother, when I was a child, said things like, pas devant les enfants, just, just as a matter of course. Why is it, do you think, that the sort of mythological idea of Englishness that we have very much harks back to the Saxons, you know, as if the conquest, you know, a thousand years ago were, was this sort of blip. Why not back to the Romano-Britons? Why is it the Saxon era that seems to be the one in which, you know, our romantic idea of the stout yeoman of England goes back? Is it because of that divide? Well, I, I, I think it's a very, very old yearning of the English. I mean, Roger Scruton, I quote Roger Scruton in the book as saying that we English have this very strange feeling in the back of our minds that, I think I'm quoting him by memory, that somehow someone foreign has taken away what was rightfully ours. Deep, it's a deep part of the English psyche, because it actually happened. And I think that from very early on, the ordinary English, they never stopped harking back to this, this, this age when they could actually speak to their betters in the same language. It's a very profound thing when you think about it. And I say that it, it lasts to this day. I, mean, I, I speak pretty well fluent bilingual German and pretty good Spanish and French and things. But, and in those countries, someone from the lower class hearing an educated or upper, or upper class person speaking will recognise that language as a more sophisticated version of their own. But an American or a Brit hearing someone too highfalutin and fancy foreign and too educated speaking will tend to perceive them virtually as some kind of foreigner to this day. And that, that's, I think that that's an enormous... The, the cultural ramifications of that are extraordinarily important, I think. And if you look at Johnson's speeches during the Brexit campaign... He himself is you know, obviously prone to classicist waffling in normal life, but when he did his actual stand-up speeches, they, they were all very carefully framed almost entirely in Anglo-Saxon words because he knew damn well who he was talking to. And that's always been the key in English politics or American politics. That's why Trump succeeds as well. You've got to be able to... The idea that someone can speak to the ordinary people not as a member of some quasi-foreign treacherous elite but as one of us is deeply, deeply potent among the English and their American cousins. In counterpoint to that... A theme that seems to run through your book is that one of the reasons Britain has been sort of successful is that in some ways that upper class has been more porous than in 
most of the continent for most of history. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's not just mine. That, that, that's, that's an opinion which is not just mine, but it's, it's sort of orthodoxy among, among historians, really. I mean, historian after historian has noted that the, the English upper class was more open, open to merchants joining it and so forth, than, than anywhere else in Europe from really a very early stage. And I think this is because it's what happens in, 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 a, in a colony. If you imagine the norm, here are the Normans in England. Now, in, a, in an ordinary country, say like medieval France, you, your, your belonging to the elite is all to do with your genealogy, which is why right up to the, the French Revolution, the French were completely obsessed with having to have you know, four generations of nobility in order to become an army officer and that sort of thing. In Norman England, in Anglo-Norman England, your membership of the colonial elite was defined entirely by your culture. If you spoke decent French, you were one of us. And that meant that all you had to do to get in was to learn French and have money, obviously. And if you did, you had automatically made that public statement that you're one of us. It's rather like an Indian, remember the Indian middle class in the 19th century, speaking English in public. That was taken as by us and by his fellow Indians, no doubt, as a sign of allegiance. So a wealthy Indian who could speak English was actually allowed in to an extent which we probably underestimate today to the, to the ruling orders of, of the Raj. And that would have been what happened roughly, I suspect, in, in Anglo-Norman England. It's very hard to find the sources, of course, but because any, any country with an elite set apart by language and culture is different to a country where the elite's simply set apart by their genealogy. Now, the idea of England as a sort of, you know, isolated, noble island nation reliant entirely on itself, that's something you seem to set out to explode a lot of the way through this book. I mean, we were pretty connected to the continent, not just by conquest, weren't we? We were, and at the height of our power, the, 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 the period that really fascinates me, the period I love most of all is the, the late 19th century, and Disraeli is one of my great heroes. And if you look at what Disraeli was doing in the 1870s, we were at the height of our power there. We had this wonderful unified elite. It didn't matter whether you were the son of a, a laird or a Gaelic Irish prince or an English manufacturer, they all went to this new wave of public schools which had been opened deliberately in the 1850s to do that job. They all spoke the same, they all taught the same, and under Disraeli, we, we, kind of, we were the arbiter of Europe, not just of the empire. I mean, B Bismarck absolutely wanted to get Disraeli on his side, and it could have been so. That's what fascinated, one of the great alternative possibilities of, of world history is that Disraeli's proposed alliance with Bismarck and the Habsburgs could have come off had he won the 1880 election, which would have absolutely changed the entire path of world history had we and the Germans united to stop the Russians on all fronts, which is what Bismarck wanted. Everything would have been different. It's extraordinary. And unfortunately, it was bloody Gladstone withdrawing from Europe into his kind of Bill Clintonite fantasies of, of an, an, an easy, easy empire that on a low tax and not getting involved in entanglements and everyone being very happy in a lovely Christian sunlit uplands of brotherhood, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that left left Europe to its own devices. And it almost immediately, if you look at what happened, the lineup of World War I happens almost immediately when we retreated from Europe. I think you say, you know, they, they knew this was coming from you know, 1887. Yeah, they were, the Victorian journalists were really, really high-quality bunch. They, and I, I've, I've got in the book there people saying, you know, just, just in, in the Freeman's Journal of Dublin or somewhere, it's obvious what's going to happen next. You know, the French and the Germans are going to fight, and that'll be in the Austrians and Russians in on each side. And this is the 30, 40 years before the First World War. We knew what was going to happen, but we couldn't take sides because we are so ripped apart by our own domestic troubles, really, with, with, with nationalism, which Gladstone unleashed with the folly of the Reform Act, you know. <laughs> and actually, you know, one thing we haven't touched on yet is, is another of the biggest themes of the book, talking nationalism, the North-South Divide, which you say rather neatly very, in the first few pages, you know, this is a Jurassic issue. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's geology. You, you know, you can't escape geology. I mean, we, we all know that geography is supposed to be fate, because so saith the Greeks. But I mean, 
in Britain and geology is fate. And the, 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 the unfortunate thing for the North is that we have a sort of triple whammy in England because, and it's all purely coincidental, that the good land is south of the Trent. South of the Trent also has the better climate and south of the Trent is also obviously nearer to Europe for, for new ideas, bigger markets and so forth. So that everything in English history, sadly for Northerners, conspires against the North. So the, the South has always been. Roman Britain was really limited to the South of England, apart from anything else. And it's always been the senior partner. There was a blip, of course, in the Industrial Revolution, where, where that geology kind of turned, where the, the geological advantage was turned on its head because in those poorer, older soils were hidden vast amounts of coal, which, which powered the Industrial Revolution. And for a brief moment, this is, of course, the background to the Chartists. It's nothing to do with politics, it's to do with North-South. The North sort of found its voice again with the Chartists. And what they wanted to do, and there's a wonderful letter I got from Karl Marx himself saying, you know, ah, wonderful, wonderful, a parliament in Manchester, a parliament in London, a new era in the history of the world. Leveling up. Yeah, because he actually, they actually tried setting up an alternative parliament in Manchester. Not many people know that. And so and this is precisely the moment where the, the Reverend Woodard steps up to the crease and says, no, no, we must stop this. And with that lovely, wonderful openness with which people said things in Victorian England, they said, look, all these, all these northern, northern non-conformists are appalling. We've got to re-educate their middle class into southern English Anglicans and starting off this new wave of public schools, places like Lansing, which, transform, which, which created then this, this, you know, what we, we now know as you know, the, the public school ethos, the public school men of, of, of the late Victorian era. So the North-South divide is absolutely the hinge of English history. Always has been. You mentioned the public school system, which is, of course, a big part of the sort of idea of this porosity of the of the ruling class that, you know, you could, if you had a bit of money, get your children to speak better than you, to do Latin, to do Greek, to you know absorb that ethos. I mean, how much has that been, do you think, constitutive of, of the way the English national sense of itself is shaped and how much is it something that's that's exacerbated in some sense the existing divides? I mean, because now there's a you know strong sense that people say you know the public school system actually has created a sort of elite of old Etonian idiots you know who are sending the country to wreck and ruin. I think that the, the secret here, and this is something which which some people will possibly find unwelcome, is that elites are fine so long as they hang together, and the, the problem comes when elites themselves split. Now, so long as the elite sticks together as one, basically, which, is what the, which was the case in late Victorian England, then what will, all that will happen is that the, the, the lower orders, for want of a better word, will, will ape them and do what they do. So if you look at the spread of sports, for example, you know, just football's codified at Charterhouse, rugby's invented at rugby, then you have the first, the first Wisdom in 1863, the first, the first book on tennis in 1874, all aimed at public school boys, but all of these things copied by people lower down the social scale, because so long as the elite is as one, obviously... Ordinary people will follow them and want to do what they do. The problem comes when they split. And this has happened repeatedly in England. The Reformation is one example of that. The Civil War, which in many ways is only an extension of the Reformation. That's what people at the time said about it anyway. They're split again from, from the 18th century, from the Act of Succession, I suppose, or certainly from, from, the, from the 1745 defeat. The whole British Isles elite is united in this Georgian architecture and education business. We, we, we think of Georgian as, we all love Georgia, and we all think of it as quintessentially British and talking of stability and parklands and well-order. So, but it, it was an extraordinary radical foreign import in its day. You know, Georgian architecture has nothing to do whatever with England or English histories. It was all imported from, from, from the continent, self-consciously, to, to make us look like Romano-Greeks and all speak Romano-Greek. And that elite, so long as that elite held together, they were able to hold the fractures of the United Kingdom and of England itself 
together. The great disaster is when the, the, the bloody Tory party splits. Major's bastards are the great villains of the piece. Yes. Now, actually, speaking of that, that Georgian thing, there's a lovely bit in the book that I'd, I'd like to quote. We say, what the modern English fetishises, the traditional English countryside, fine Georgian buildings and a landscape of hedgerows, was created by the wholesale importation of foreign architecture and the destruction of traditional English country life by force, if need be. <laughs> It's not, not all Jane Austen, is it, there? No, but it isn't. It isn't. <laughs> no, no, but, <laughs> but, I mean, it, it worked. That's the that's extraordinary thing. I and mean, it works yeah. it, it, not just in England. It works in Ireland. You know, I, mean, I, I, I know some people in Ireland there whose, whose descendants stopped being rebellious clan chieftains and became essentially Georgian gentlemen, though perhaps Catholic still, and started sending their children to downside and things or whatever it was in those days. And they all, they all learned Greek and Latin and wrote their letters in French and so forth, like, like their English Protestant neighbours. And that happened in Scotland as well. And so that we created this elite who were more or less indistinguishable one from the other. I mean, no one in late Victorian England cared a jot about nationalism among the elite. It didn't matter at all whether, whether you were the laird of so-and-so or, or the, prince of the, the, the Gaelic Irish prince of so-and-so. You, you, you served the British Empire just the same. And this, this provided this sort of sense of unity and leadership that held the whole thing together. And it all fell apart when, well, as soon as people got the vote because no one had ever asked these common people. And when Gladstone, in his wisdom, gave people, gave far more people, the vote in 1884, as soon as they could use those votes, they start voting along separatist, nationalist, regional lines. I mean, it's most obvious in Ireland, because they straight away start voting for what will become the Irish nationals, Irish nationalists. But the English, I mean, if you look at the electoral maps, it's extraordinary that, that suddenly, as soon as the, vote, the masses can vote, southern England goes and stays forever Tory. The Conservative Party, until 2019, was the party of the south of England. That was its historical function. And you can see this on electoral maps right from the word go. So we, not only did the United Kingdom start to split, but so does England. And the person who recognised this most memorably of all was, of course, Churchill. Because there's Winston Churchill in 1912, and it wasn't just a kind of Johnsonian off-the-cuff waffling idea, because he repeated it in 1913 and, and reminded people of what he'd said. In, in, in 1912, and he seriously proposed what he called Home Rule for All, a federal United Kingdom, which would include the division of England up into self-governing areas. Because he perceived, and I think correctly, that in the democratic era, an England which was, as it was in his day, conservative-dominated, could not coexist with, with, with nationalistically inclined Celts and would inevitably destroy the United Kingdom. And the only solution Churchill could find to that was to divide England up. So not my idea, but his. Later picked up by Tony Blair. Yeah, well, but picked up by everyone since. Every, every leader of the Liberal and Labour Party since him has basically toyed with the idea. Wilson and Kinnock and everyone made vague offers of devolution. Because they had to, because the, the Labour Party is this very strange and bizarre thing, which is basically finished, I suspect. Because it is, it is the party of outer Britain. That's all it ever was. It had no English tradition. The Liberals and Conservatives both, uh, both go back to the Whigs, the, the, the Whigs and the Tories, and, and thereby to the sides in the Civil War in England. But Labour never existed as an English party. It was purely a, an, an outer British party, outer British meaning Northern England, Wales and Scotland. How much has that landscape, the landscape you describe, changed in the last sort of 100 years or so? I'm thinking that, you know, because now the conversations we have about you know, this very divided and troubled country, we're always told Britain's in schism, are much more about city versus, you know, as the industrial base has sort of vanished. And a lot of that, you know, for, for a very long time seemed to be what, you know, articulated the divide you, you described. But now there's, you know, 
the cities, you know, say London specifically, you know, London's full of Labour seats. There's no longer quite so straightforward a north-south divide and there's more a city-country divide. Do you think that's undone or, or changed in a profound way, the the old divides? I don't think it's changed it profoundly. I mean, L L London's Labourness is, is surprisingly recent, of course. I mean, London still voted for John Major, lest we forget, quite substantially, in fact, in terms of seats. It's a relatively recent thing, and I, and, and I suspect if I were to call future Tory policy, and I suspect this might be the root of the um, Carrie versus Cummings business, uh, the, the obvious thing for the Tories to do is to try and win back seats in London, because if the electoral maths says that now Ireland's gone, never mind if Scotland, if Scotland goes doubly so, but even with Scotland still here, all the Conservative Party has to do is hold on to its southern England and win at least half of London, and they're in power forever. That's the electoral maths. The Labour Party can only ever win if it manages to corral the whole of the north of England and Scotland and Wales and big parts of London. That's its only route to Westminster. So all the Tories have to just hold on to the kind of northern home counties and, and the southern West Midlands uh, and make sure they compete in London and they're home and dry forever, mathematically. That leads to the Roy Jenkins question. Do you, if that's the electoral maths, is that fair? Do you think there's a way of doing it differently? Well, our, our electoral maths is, is, is very interesting. It, it hadn't occurred to me since I was doing the research for this that had we, if we had, for example, pure proportional representation in this country, at every election since the war, bar only 1955 and 2019, but both of them only by a whisker, the Liberal Party would have been able to offer an alliance to the second-placed party, which would have outgunned the biggest party at every election. So we, were, we, were, we, we could have had, and I think we should have had, something like a national politics rather than this extraordinary division, because what you ended up with instead is two enormous great parties, two which are excessively broad churches, really, both of them based in different cultures and different regions, essentially, fighting it out, each, each hoping to be the absolute winner next time round, which has been extraordinarily divisive, and I mean, it, it, it both expresses and exacerbates the divides that are there in, in England itself. And I don't see any and, way around at the moment. And taking your, your super-long historical perspective, how much do you think the idea of healing the north-south divide by levelling up or creating a northern powerhouse or whatever it might be? You know, this is a lot of rhetoric that's been bagging around for 15, 20 years at least. Do you see that as, as a realistic aspiration or do you think that this great Jurassic divide is still going to be unhealable? I, I think that a, a division that goes back so long and is so powerful and which amounted you know, at various times in English history to two entire different countries with their own religions and own ways of speaking practically and so forth is not going to be healed by anyone's intentions. We, it looked as though Boris had done it, of course, in 2019, and that was the entire drive of his policy, was to, was to, to say, bugger, essentially, bugger Scotland, I need the north of England. And it looked like it worked. Everyone rejoiced and said at last, you know, this is the first time for many northerners in their history they have voted along with southerners. So it looked as though an English national appeal had actually worked. But as soon as the first major crisis comes along, all the headlines are screaming, Northern Revolt, again, as though we're on autopilot, which I, in a sense we are. And I, I have a horrible suspicion that, that, that if one, once Scotland goes, which it will, frankly, it's, that's, that's a done deal, I'm afraid. I mean, I'm part of Scots myself and was brought up there, and I, I think it's going, for sure. Once we're left alone to our own devices for the first time in hundreds of years as, as, a, as, a, as a nation, the divide will become even clearer, I suspect. And I don't... I, I, Excessive as it sounds, that a sort of Czechoslovak solution or rather Czechia and Slovakia is not really far off because the whole economies and cultures, not just well, look at the economies, are so different. 
that what is good for one is almost by definition bad for the other. And this has been the case, this, this started off in the 1880s, this bifurcation of the English economy. And so, for example, you had, you know, the, the, when the whole world went protectionist in the 1880s, 1890s, you had the Americans started passing their McKinnon Acts, which were essentially, which were de facto aimed mainly at British manufacturers. But the financial South didn't care about that at all, because it could just invest straight in American companies. Or it's huge washes of capital, which, as Ferguson and people have pointed out, you know, no country has ever invested so much abroad as we did in the later 19th century. We stopped investing in the North, started investing in it, so we didn't care who went protectionist. It didn't affect us in the South. And the English economy started splitting then, to the extent now, and, and you know, people, people like Millen noted it in the, in the late 50s and early 60s as well. Every, every, every serious thinker's noted this. And they're now so different that it's almost impossible to help them both at the same time because they need different things. And I, I know when I talk about the breakup of the UK and things, it, it, sound, it sounds drastic, but you know, I, I am old enough to have sat in my university office in my first year as an alleged expert on German literature at a university when, when the wall fell. And neither I nor any of my allegedly expert colleagues had the remotest notion it was going to happen. And even after it happened, had you said to us, will Germany be a fully united country within 12 months, 13 months? We'd have all said, not a chance. You know, so th th these things sound, they sound terrible, they sound excessive and drastic and, until they happen. I mean, I know, I know the Irish situation, I, my, wife, my wife's an Irish Protestant, and if you look at Ireland there, if you'd said in 1870, before, before, before the mass voting came, that Ireland would, within 50 years, be, actually break away from the UK completely, most of it, at any rate, then, then people would have laughed at you then. You know, Irish nationalism was regarded as a joke, a musical joke in the 1860s or even the 1870s. These things come, come upon us very suddenly. Scottish national, the, the, the independence of Scotland will happen in some unforeseen and strange and overnight way, I suspect. Well, that, that line, I can't remember whose line it is, but if you're Hemingway's, it, you know, it goes, how do you go broke? You know, first gradually, then all at once. Yes, that, well, it's, it's that, 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 that tipping point thing. You know, where the UK, I'm afraid, is rather like the Titanic. You know, we, we've been gashed below the waterline. We're sitting there and nothing appears to have happened because time's sort of been frozen by the Covid epidemic. But once the full, once that water reaches a certain point, as it will when we, when we finally enact Brexit, the, the leaving of Scotland will happen extraordinarily quickly and unforeseenly, I think. I mean, if you are, think of your, your listeners think about this. Could anybody have foreseen, even a year ago, any circumstance under which the Scottish and Welsh governments could seriously be discussing stopping English cars at the border? It would have been absolutely impossible to think of that. And yet, it's, yet they are seriously and openly discussing that now. And these are the kind of little things which, which these little ripples are, are, are the signs of, of the water that's building up in the hold. And it's going to take the UK under far more quickly than we think, I fear. And I, I speak as a great patron of the UK. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm half Scots myself. I've got two Welsh-speaking sons who are very proud. My, my wife is an Irish Protestant, so I sort of incorporate the UK virtually. I think it's a great place. and was incredibly successful, strange, bizarre. You know, it was a multicultural, multilingual policy that that's ruled half the world, but its day is done, I'm afraid. And that leaves us English in a very, in a very strange and exposed place. Well, before we get on to Brexit, or perhaps uh, as a sideways way of getting into Brexit, I was very interested when you talk about the Reformation, you talk about the way in which, you know, a particular elite faction allies with or suborns popular opinion. And you have this, this supplication for the beggars. You have this, you say, Packed with made-up statistics and wild accusations, it offered a conspiracy theory calculated to appeal to commas and king alike. The cause of the oppression of the English people, why was the country in such dire economic straits? 
What was stopping Henry from solving his dynastic problems? It was Rome. If only foreign rule was broken, there would be not only a financial dividend for all the English and a grand renewal of national vigour, it would also mean total power for Henry. You know, as you wrote that, did you mean that as a sort of parallel? Uh, yes, I mean, absolutely, because it, it, well, I, I'd never come across this before. As, as you rightly said at the beginning, I'm, I'm not a professional and academic historian, and I'd never come across this supplication for the beggars. It's a wonderful document, and I recommend your listeners to, to look it up on, on Wikipedia so and read it in the entirety. It's just this extraordinary mass of attacks on, on Rome, as, as though there's nothing wrong with England that wouldn't be sorted by an immediate break with Rome, including rather wonderfully the claim that we'd have plenty of money for our hospitals. <laughs> it's not, it's not really, it actually says that in, in black and white, in sort of, you know, early medieval English. We shall, then that shall be the best hospital for us that ever was. That sort of thing. We have plenty of money when these yearly exactions do cease, sort of thing. And it came against the background of, of, of Henry's own needs. So, you know, the Reformation was entirely Again, it was completely unthinkable in 1525. It would never have occurred to anybody that it was going to happen. Well, actually, the point you make is that you know, Henry was awarded the title Defender of the Faith just a few years previously for you know, slagging off Martin Luther. Well, absolutely. Um, and his, his problem was, again, he, that he'd engaged badly with Europe because Henry, France and the Habsburg Empire were both much more populous and rich than England at that stage. And Henry, by trying to play with his rival sovereigns who were more or less his own age, he managed to antagonise both of them. So that when it came, all he wanted to do was get his marriage annulled. And this did happen quite regularly in royal circles. It wasn't, it wasn't actually a big deal. But the trouble was that the Pope by then was actually quite literally the prisoner of, of Charles V, who was, of course, Catherine of Aragon's nephew. And so he was not going to get his bloody annulment. And he tried to get the French to help him invade Rome itself. But the French said, well, butter off, you were invading us three years ago. <laughs> no. You know, so at this vital moment, Henry had messed everybody around and, and swapped sides so often that no one was going to help him. So what really should have been a really quite simple dynastic matter became this matter of life and death for Henry, because the Tudors were a very new dynasty, of course. And were he not to have a male heir, the entire dynasty was absolutely finished. And in his own position would, get, would, would, would be challenged if everyone knew he didn't have a male heir and wasn't going to get one then his own position would become, would become very, very delicate. So it was entirely driven by his needs, and it so happened that he had these accomplices among these ambitious academics. who, who who'd, who'd, they, they looked over at Europe and saw what Martin Luther had done, and he'd become this obscure priest, had become a sort of mover and shaker by using the, this amazing new thing called print, which meant you could get your ideas out to everybody far more quickly. And, and, and they, they tried it on in sort of the supplication of the beggars. They, they, they get it printed in Antwerp, bring it over and scatter it amongst the crowd, as Henry, the fifth, Henry VIII is parading around, around by Charing Cross. One of it is picked up by Anne Boleyn herself, allegedly, and smuggled into the bedroom, and she's reading it to him and says, well, look here, this is rather handy. You know, there's there's this, this bunch of radical, ambitious young radical priests who are saying, why not give all power to Henry? Good idea, eh? <laughs> and as he didn't, you know, his, his successors haven't handed back the Defender of the Faith title, no, it's a very good title, isn't it? <laughs> Even though they very much went back on what it implied. I mean, the succession of Protestant rulers who are all calling themselves Defender of the Faith was a title given them by the Pope. The way the Pope's mixed up in our politics, everyone seems to forget that the Pope himself ordered a Te Deum to be sung when the Battle of the Boyum was won by William. Because we think of it as kind of Catholics versus Protestants. It wasn't, of course, at all. I mean, William was backed... William III, William Prince of Orange, his invasion of England, for that is what it was, not the Glorious Revolution. I mean, it was backed by both the Habsburgs and the Pope himself, because it was part of European politics to try and contain Louis XIV's France. Actually, you, you, you say that William was very good at the sort of early fake news, because it was absolutely promising one thing to the Brits, 
and another thing to the continent, wasn't he? Yes, yes. I mean, he, he sends his proclamation to England saying, the only reason I'm coming, no, no, I can't do a Dutch accent, as I can. the only reason I'm coming to was to save, save your religion, nothing else. Turn to Russian, never mind. So anyway, this foreign chap who can't speak a word of English is coming, it happens to be married to, to the daughter of, of a James, is, 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 comes in and, and promises the English, I'm only coming to restore your ancient freedoms and protect Protestant religion, and then I'll be off. Meanwhile, he's promising the Pope and the Habsburgs, this has nothing to do with religion, it's just anti-French. And so the, the English are then dragged by William into Europe because William's, own, William's motivation for invading England is, is not that he wants to be king of England particularly, he just wants to use the, the financial and military muscle of England against France rather than it possibly being leagued up with France as it was under Charles and uh, potentially under James. He's scared of that, he's terrified by the, by the, if, if James as a Catholic might league with the French and that's the end of Holland then. So we get dragged into Europe straight away and, and, and end up fighting the French for the next hundred years successfully. Because we are more united, because we have this wonderful elite who are more businesslike than they are. And Brendan Sims has a lovely description of, of, of George in England as, as, quote, a polity programmed for commerce and war, which I love and have quoted. Yes, you've got some lovely virtuous circle diagrams showing how, it, how that ended up. One of the great successes of our polity, which we haven't touched on and we should briefly, much debated now, is the empire. Now, one of the things that's striking in your book, which... I, I wonder whether that's going to be contentious, is your argument seems to be that the reason the British Empire was such a success and half the world turned pink was not because we were more enterprising or commercial or, you know, go ahead and, you know, full of pluck than the other imperial powers, but that things were so crap here for ordinary people that they were easier to export. That's absolutely, I mean, we, it's a mixture of both. I mean, we were, we were, we were successful militarily, because, for example, the British Navy was, was, was an extraordinary motor of, of, of social mobility in its day, was extraordinarily well-funded as well, and had a, a unique cult of all-out attack because you know, young lieutenants used to toast a good war in a sickly season because they knew that the only way to get, get promotion was if the rest of them dropped dead. So they looked forward to battles in which all their, all their, their fellow, other fellows in the wardroom would be killed. And, and so the British military was extraordinarily effective because it, certainly the Navy, compared to, say, the French or Spanish navies, was very much more open and technocratic and meritocratic. But in terms of settlement, that was the great big difference. That was the enormous difference in, in America. And the French and the Spanish had their sort of younger sons, penniless younger sons of nobles and conquistadors and so forth who, who wanted to rush off and make money in the colonies. But what neither of them had was large numbers of people who were willing to risk their lives and leave everything go, and go away. Because if you look, I mean, England in the early 17th century, people were starving to death, quite literally. And uh, from, from, the, from late Elizabeth through King James, there's this great mass of people who are really in absolute desperation in England. And the idea of they could go somewhere and get free land and have a go at settling somewhere entirely different, appealed to them in a way it didn't appeal to a French peasant or, or a Spanish peasant who were relatively secure and well off. You know, the, the English had had their, all their, their, their common lands or were having, their common lands enclosed and so forth, and really saw no way out. The social order was sort of collapsing in, in, in the early in King James's reign. There were repeated instances of peasants being hanged en masse for resisting enclosures and so forth. And that's the background to the Pilgrim Fathers, is the utter desperation, because the, the, the Little Ice Age, of course, had made large areas of England, particularly the north, are only marginal for agriculture again. And that's where, that's where the Pilgrim Fathers come from, from, from that area, which is getting very, very difficult to farm. And you're having all this pressure of enclosures is, is robbing you of your common lands and the other little means you had of surviving by gathering sticks in the wood or whatever you could have done before they were enclosed. So this mixture of, of the most highly developed financial 
and, and, and sort of industrial mercantile power in Europe with very poor people who could be taken to settle is what, what led to the establishment of the English-speaking empire, which never, the Spanish and French never quite cracked. Well, there's much more we could talk about. I want to just end, though, because I think, unfortunately, we're running out of time. There's, there's a lot in this short history. But one detail, the great emblem for the English nationalists now is the George's Cross. You've got a story about the origins of the George's Cross, which is absolutely startling to me. Well, it's one of the most interesting epochs. You know, Simon de Montfort, who's now famous as, as the founder of Parliament, the father of Parliament, in his rebellions, he had actually enlisted the common English speakers for the first time. He forces the king to sign this thing called the Provisions of Oxford in 1258. And this is sent round to every town and burgess in the country to be read out. And it's to be read out in English as well as French. And this is the, very, this is the first time since the conquest, it's the first time in 200 years, that the ordinary English have been addressed in their own language by a putative ruler, in this case not the king, but Simon de Montfort, and to enlist them. And it works. And it's with their help, he, his, his army, when he, when he defeats the Battle of Lewes, where he defeats Prince Edward and his father, is largely composed of common Londoners. And, and it's because Ed, the young, young Prince Edward is so keen to massacre the commoners, he kind of deserts his post a bit like Prince Rupert at some of his battles, gallops off after massacring the commoners and doesn't come back to help his father. And Simon de Montfort wins the battle. But when, when the royalists come back at the Battle of Evesham, they adopt this badge in order to distinguish themselves in the melee. The, the order goes out, no quarter is given. We're not, you know, the chivalric rules are suspended. This bastard de Montfort has actually tried to, you know, enlist the commoners against the king, so he's going to be treated like a commoner. So Prince Edward orders that there's no, no one's going to be taken prisoner this time at all. But in order to make sure the wrong people don't get massacred, all his men wear this new badge, which is the Cross of St George. And the fact that his own father wasn't wearing one because he was de Montfort's prisoner almost led to his own father being killed by mistake. De Montfort and all his followers are massacred on the spot, no quarter, chopped up in little pieces. And that is the patriotic origin of, of the St George's Cross of England, worn for the first time at the defeat and killing of the first man who'd addressed the common English since the conquest. <laughs> well, well self-deprecation was always one of our national characteristics. James Hawes, thank you very much indeed for your time. <laughs> thank you, Sam. Thank you very much for listening, and I very much hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please do sign up and rate and review us for whichever your podcast provider is. And even better, please tell your friends and family that the Book Club podcast exists. We also have an event to mention. The food writer and Bake Off star Prue Leith and her niece, the pastry chef Peter Leith, will be talking about their lives and love of food with, well... Me, Sam Leith. It's a bit of a family affair. It takes place on Tuesday the 24th of March at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster and you can book tickets at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash prue, P-R-U-E.